Well, we are kind of diving deep these last couple Sundays. Um, last week, we, we took a look at um, uh, Jesus as being fully human and, and why he had to be a man uh, in order to, to be able to empathize with our situation. Today, we're going to look at the flip side of, of this and, and see that Jesus is also fully God. Now, getting this right has always been difficult. In, in the first century, the church was expanding and, and rapidly growing. It was on a mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And between the time that Jesus rose from the dead and, and by the time the, the last apostle, that was John, took his last breath around 100 A.D., the church had grown to about 25,000 uh, people. But in the next 200 years, the church would explode to more than 20 million Christ followers. And along with this rapid growth, there came a need to agree on the core beliefs so that new believers could be carefully uh, instructed in the faith before baptism. And the biggest challenge for the church in those years was, who is Jesus? Who is he anyhow? And it was essential to get that right. And, and the church was not unanimous on this issue. Plus, there was also competing beliefs. The ancient world had, had myths about the gods coming down in human form to temporarily interact with, with humans. And they had legends about, about humans becoming gods. And plus, they had stories about what they called demigods, who were the offspring of a human and a god. But who exactly is Jesus? I mean, this was really hard to articulate. How do you explain something that's never happened uh, before? H how in the world do you explain the, the mystery of the Godhead? God, three in one. So finally, to resolve this issue, the Emperor Constantine uh, called a church council in Nicaea, Turkey. 300 church leaders from all over the empire, uh, empire came, and for two months they worked on a document that would uh, explain who Jesus was. And, and today it's called the Nicene Creed. And this is how it reads. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light of the light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, and through him all things were made. And then the Nicene Creed explains why. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became truly human. God incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. What in the world does that mean? Well, the word incarnate comes from the root word carne, and con carne means what? Con carne means what? With meat, yeah. Now, if this sounds really kind of theologically abstract and hard to follow, I, I want you to think of chili, okay? Chili with meat is called what? Chili? Yeah, exactly. Chili, God with meat, God with skin, God with flesh, God a spicy stew with meat. <laughs> now this is more than some kind of silly abstract theology. This makes incredible difference in our lives. This very truth, I believe, 
can change our eternal destiny. See, I was brought to the baptismal font um, as a baby by my parents. And they did their best as they knew how to raise me uh, in the faith, to be faithful to their vows, to help me grow up to be a Christian. I can't say that really took hold in the early part of, of my life. Um, I went to Sunday school and church when they made me. I don't ever remember, even as a very young elementary age student, of, of ever going willingly to church. It was always something I, I had to do. Now, later on in high school, there was this girl. Um, I thought she was pretty cute, and sometimes that motivated me uh, to go to church. But other than that, I just, you know, well, once I got to play the wise men in the annual Christmas pageant. I didn't have any lines, but I got to wear this really neat outfit, you know, and carry a box of gold with me. I thought that was kind of cool. I was okay with a belief in God. I was okay with believing in this historical figure named Jesus who, who really led an extraordinary life. But frankly, there was really no room in my life for Jesus as the Son of God. And then college happened. And for most of us, those of us who went to college, college kind of wrecks your spiritual life, doesn't it? But for me, it, it, was, a, it was a great thing. And um, we were reading C.S. Lewis for a philosophy of religion class. And in his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis wrote this. Listen. Am I getting a little air back in my microphone? It may be me. Okay, let's try that. And this is what he writes. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option to us. And indeed, he did not intend to. And I read those words, and it was an absolute eye-opener. You can't dismiss Jesus by saying he was a great man, or a moral teacher, or an extraordinary human being. But long before Christmas, the prophets of Israel gave us a glimpse of this. And we see it especially in the prophet Isaiah. And in chapter 7, he spoke of a virgin giving birth to a son. Now, first of all, that, that, that's kind of interesting, a virgin giving birth to a son. That doesn't happen every day. But he, his name would be Emmanuel, which in the Hebrew means God is with us. And then in chapter 9, there's another strange utterance. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Okay, so a, a new ruler, a great king, wonderful. But he goes on, he says, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Wait a minute. Mighty God? Everlasting Father? How can that be? What, what kind of human would be given such names? But Isaiah doesn't stop there. Beginning in chapter 40, he begins to prophesy about a voice who will cry out, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Isaiah is glimpsing the future, and he's seen something brand new that has never happened before in the history of the world that is, that is going to take place. And we've got to get ready for it. And then in chapter 50, he begins to give us a glimpse of this. He says, the sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I've offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. What, what does that remind you of? Yeah, Jesus on the cross. Now, this is called the suffering servant narrative of Isaiah. And, and at first, it seems to be speaking uh, about the nation of, of Judah personified in this figure of a suffering servant. But as you go on, you begin to realize, no, he's actually speaking about a person who is going to take upon the sins of the entire world. And, of course, the early church read these words and they said, oh, this is Jesus. This is referring to Jesus. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. In, in chapter 53, he says this, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was cru- crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. How could a human do this? How could another person bear our sufferings? Sure, all of us have been recipients of of grace and mercy from people. Sometimes our parents, sometimes our siblings, when we're not fighting with them, maybe a good friend, you know. Maybe maybe this weekend you received a kindness from a stranger. Maybe you were speeding and you got pulled over and the policeman, rather than writing you up a ticket, he gave you a warning, you know. Or... um, you know, maybe um, you, you had a flat tire and a good Samaritan stopped by and, and he helped you out or she helped you out. But this suffering servant seems to go way beyond this and, and actually takes upon himself our punishment for our transgressions and for our iniquities. Never has anything like this happened before. But this is how the prophet Isaiah saw it. But it's not, just the, it's not just the prophets. Luke's gospel tells us a story of the Annunciation. When, when the angels come to Mary and they announce to her that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, those of you who have sons, you know, your, your sons are pretty amazing, right? But you didn't call him the Son of God, did you? This is something unique, something different. And then when the birth finally does occur, a chorus of angels proclaims to the shepherds, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, uh, the Lord. And and again, when when your children were born, if you have children, you know, it was a very special moment, but did did, did angels come and sing at the birth? Probably not. But clearly the angels believed that this birth was something unique, something special, something that never happened before. But not only did the prophets predict it, and not only did the angels proclaim it, but Jesus himself preached it about himself, and it got him into lots of trouble. In John's Gospel, chapter 7, division begins because Jesus begins making these, these startling claims, and it's making all the religious elites really, really mad. He's saying things like, like uh, I know God because I'm from him, and he sent me. Well, how arrogant can you get? 
And then he goes on to say, like, I am the light of the world. I, I, I am, I, you eat me and, and, you'll, and you'll never go hungry. Whoever obeys my words will, will never see death. I am the water of life. And he claimed to be able to forgive sins. And, and he said, I and the Father are one. And when he said that, they were infuriated. They knew exactly what this meant. And their response was to call him raving mad and demon-possessed and a blasphemer. They tried to arrest him. Later on, Jesus said these startling words. He said, before Abraham was, now remember, Abraham would have been about 2,000 years earlier. He said, before Abraham was, I am. What? What are you, 30 years old, and you're saying that you're older than Abraham? But see, he uses that word, I am. That's the same phrase, Yahweh, when Moses encountered God in the burning bush. They knew that what he was doing was equating himself with God himself, and they picked up some rocks, and they tried to kill him. Now, that's how Jesus, a fellow Jews, felt about him. He claimed to be God, and for a Jew, the idea that God could become a human being was the worst possible thing. It was the worst possible disgrace. But even among the raving fans of Jesus, people who considered themselves his followers, who saw incredible miracles that only God could do, like open the eyes of the blind and make the lame walk and turn the water into wine, even they struggled with this idea of him being God. I mean, he had this sublime, incredible teaching that could only have come from God, but, but to believe that he was actually God in the flesh was more than that they could believe. But it wasn't just the angels who knew it. Demons knew it as well. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, it says this. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. And he cried out at the top of his voice, Go away, Jesus. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the what? Holy One of God. Now, those who knew him best, who lived with him for three years and, and were observers of all he did, they were convinced of who he was. Now, it would take a resurrection before they were finally convinced. Even right up before his death, they were still having doubts about this. But, if, but all of them, every one of his disciples, spent the remainder of their lives with this laser-like focus to share this with as many people as they could wherever the mission of Jesus took them. And most of them died for that belief, including John. And this is what John wrote in his prologue to his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made through Him, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, John in this passage is using the Greek word logos, which is being translated as Word with a capital W. It's where our word logic uh, comes from. And when the Greeks heard this term logos, they would have thought of that logical, rational principle that they believed governed the universe. You see, the Greeks believed that there was this invisible, intelligent, integrating force behind the universe holding it together. And John is saying, yes, that, that logos, let's give him a name. His name is Jesus, and he became human. And so John is nodding to the Greeks, and he's saying, there is such a power in the world. You are right. If there was not such a power in the world, then, then our being here would simply be the result of some kind of cosmic accident. 
But John is saying our, our, our being here, our, our life is not the result of some kind of cosmic accident a billion years ago. And if that was true, then, then our lives are, are nothing more than, as Shakespeare said, a, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and, and signifying nothing. Nothing. Those really aren't words to get up out of bed for, are they? <laughs> but they're, it's a fair conclusion. But John is saying that this logical, rational, intelligent power behind the universe this power is God. And John is saying that that Logos, that force, became one of us that first Christmas, became a human being so that you and I could know him. Now, a lot of us, maybe even some of us here today, don't quite understand the meaning of our lives yet. Sometimes we feel like a like our lives is like a book with a missing chapter. And what John is saying here is that, that the, the Logos, the invisible power that holds the world together, actually became a human being named Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ is the missing chapter that will make the rest of our lives make sense. If we will embrace it. So John is teaching that Jesus is 100% human and 100% God. Now, why is this important? Why is this so important to, to grasp? See, if Jesus Christ was only human, then he, then he could die maybe in one person's place. That, that happens sometimes in annals of history, right? Somebody will sacrifice themselves so that somebody else can live. We've all heard of stories like that. Maybe you even know of something like that personally that happened. But how does one person die for the sins of the entire world? World. How does a mere mortal pay for the sins of the world? But if Jesus is 100% human and 100% God, if Jesus was both, was both a, a finite human being and infinite God, then we have someone who could die not only for one other person's sins and mistakes, but for the sins of the entire world. That's why John says that whoever comes to him, you can have your sins washed away and you can actually become a daughter or a son of God. That's why we celebrate the true Christmas story because God has become a human being. He has taken on human flesh so that we might know he is. And so this rational principle, the, the word become flesh, chili with meat, chili con carne, we can know God. But there's another reason why. John tells us this, that some of his own people did not believe him. They didn't receive him. They couldn't. They just didn't believe that somebody they knew since they, he was a baby could be God in the flesh. No room for the Son of God. And yet John goes on, he says this, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, when you hear that expression, receive him or receive Christ, you, you've heard that a few times. You may envision a kind of a one-time deal. You know, where I make a profession of faith in Christ and, and I get baptized and then I've got a one-way ticket to heaven. And that's it. End of story. You're good. But, you know, if you think about it, uh, of all of our closer uh, friendships, we know from experience that's not the way it works. That you don't just receive and, and welcome a person once into your life, but you can do that again and again as you share experiences, as you spend time together, as you go through things together. And it's the same way with Christ. 
We can receive him as Savior and Lord, and it begins to change our life. But the, the more time that we spend with him, then our, our lives begin to change more and more, and we become more and more like Christ. We become more and more like our heavenly parent. See, the longer I live, the, the more I, I, I look like my parents, especially my dad. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm walking down. We have a mirror in our, in our living room. And every once in a while, I look by and I look in that mirror and it's, oh, Dad. <laughs> you know, that ever happened to you? Look in the mirror. There's Mom staring back at you. How did that happen? Didn't want to become like my mom. Teenagers, this will happen to you. <laughs> Just warning you, it happens to all of us. Have you seen that um, progressive commercial? Have you seen the progressive commercial? And um, this guy's becoming more and, and more like his dad, and his wife's getting really upset about it. And then, and then the voiceover says, Progressive can't protect you from becoming your parents, you know. Well, John is telling us that we can become like our heavenly father. John, the writer of this gospel, he, he was a brother to a, a person named James. And, and they had a nickname. Did you know that? James and John had a nickname. Do you know what it was? Jesus gave them this nickname. What was it? Sons of Thunder. Yeah, these guys had anger issues, didn't they? Uh, one time they, uh, they wanted God to th- send down fire and burn up this village that hadn't rolled out the welcome mat to them. But something changes. And go back sometime, if you have time this week, go back and, and read First John. And you'll just see love just all over this epistle, this letter. In fact, John later on becomes known as, as a disciple of love. This happens. Why? Because they receive Jesus Christ into their lives and they become the sons of God and they begin to take on the character of their Father in heaven and they become more patient. They become more kind and loving. In fact, their lives become so beautiful that James and John are part of the reason why the Christian faith went viral in the first century. You see, one of the great promises of the Christmas story is that because of his birth, because of his death on the cross... um, for our sins, that if we receive him and believe in his name, then not only can our sins be washed away, but you and I, we get to become the sons and daughters of God. We begin to become people who resemble our heavenly parent. Last year, 13-year-old Jesse Hernandez fell into a sewer pipe after walking across some rotten boards And he fell in and uh, was swept away in the sewer pipe. And it was a race against the clock to find his location. Over 100 L.A. firefighters joined in a 13-hour search in a maze of sewer pipes. But they could not find him in this toxic, deadly environment. Until finally, firefighters strapped a camera to a floating device and they used its signal to track the boy's location. They identified handprints on the ceiling of this pipe that he had left behind. And they found him eventually a mile down from where he went in to the sewer. Amazing rescue. 
But folks, God has done the very same thing for you and me. He has done an all-out search and rescue for us, and he has come down into our toxic environment, and he has cleaned us up in the waters of baptism, and he calls us sons and daughters. I came to that conclusion 45 years ago, and it changed my life. And many others, billions of other people, have come to the same conclusion and professed faith in Christ. But this man, Jesus, who walked on this earth as a man, was indeed the Word made flesh, and spoke the universe into existence, and commanded the wind and the waves, and they were calmed. And he spoke a word, and the dead came back to life. And he was obedient, even obedient to the cross, even to the scummiest criminal's cross. And that he bent all the way down to the bottom so that by the shedding of his precious blood, you and I can be washed clean of our sin and one day actually be lifted up into that place from which he came and spend eternity with him. God of God, light of light. Very God of very God as the Nicene Creed reminds us, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. That's the conclusion that I came to. What about you? Let's pray. Chile con carne. God, we will never think of Chile the same way again. God with skin, God with meat, God with flesh, became one of us, lived the life, died on the cross, rose again, so that we could be called sons and daughters of the living God. And so, God, we can change the world here, and we can live in eternity with you forever. Thank you for that gift. Help us to embrace it. Help us to embrace our identity Help those, Lord, who are receiving the waters of baptism today to embrace a new identity as sons and daughters of the living God. Hear this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.